Mark Cuban. Going against the norm and, and looking for people who had great ideas is, is really what I look for as opposed to individuals mentoring me. David Stern. Thank you. Those are very kind and generous words. I greatly appreciate them, and thanks for having me on. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. Chris Everett. He was very interesting, and you asked great questions, so thank you very much, Brian. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Maria Taylor. Oh, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. And your preparation shows you. Tim Howard. Oh, I appreciate you saying I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Just to name a few. Let's Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio. You know, I've hosted this show for 16 years. I'll tell you that this is a top 10 podcast episode in the history of our show today. Two outstanding guests, both in the same show. First, Dr. Myron Roll, someone I've really wanted to have on the show for a long time. A neurosurgeon at Mass General Hospital in Boston. But before that, he played in the NFL for the Tennessee Titans and the Pittsburgh Steelers. He starred as a defensive back at Florida State under legendary head coach Bobby Bowden. Roll, who is a Rhodes Scholar, announced his intent to leave the NFL to attend medical school in 2013 after only three seasons in the NFL to the surprise of many. He enrolled at Florida State University College of Medicine and graduated in May 2017. He is now on the front lines in the fight against COVID-19. He discusses his path from elite football player to doctor. He also tells us what he's seen in his hospital as he and his fellow doctors and nurses fight COVID-19 during our conversation today. My other guest, also someone I've wanted to have on the show for a long time, Mark Sanchez, former quarterback at USC outstanding career at USC. He played 10 seasons in the NFL, most notably with the New York Jets. He's a current analyst for ESPN. He's the co-host of the fourth and forever podcast. I really like his new podcast. We'll catch up with Mark Sanchez on our show today as well. I'm joined via phone by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you hanging in there? I am doing good. And this is just one of those shows. I mean, your morning is now booked because you can't not listen to the show. It's just packed full of gems and great guests, two great guests and uh, exciting show. I love it. Yeah, I was really excited to talk to both of these guys and uh, they lived up to the hype in our conversations. I think you'll enjoy uh, a few headlines before we get to the conversations. First, the Masters announced this week that they have rescheduled dates. So they postponed a few weeks ago, as everything in sports has done, either postponed or canceled. And the Masters now says that they intend to play their tournament in 2020 from November 9th to the 15th in Augusta. Griggs, fall golf in Augusta. We've never seen it before. I hope it happens because it's my favorite golf tournament of the year. We've already lost tournaments like the British Open, which has been canceled, not postponed. So I really hope we get to see fall golf at Augusta. And this is one of the sports grigs, as we've talked before. In a worst-case scenario, I really think you can play the Masters without a gallery. You just have the players there. You have them social distance. You take precautions. I don't think you need a gallery there. Yeah, I agree. And first and foremost, when I saw the tweet come out that they were scheduling it, rescheduling it, I was like, yes, because you and I have talked on the show many times about how the Masters is one of our highlights of the year. And really kind of my spring kickoff for sports is, is the Masters. So it'll be interesting to see it, you know, a week, a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. What a weird, uh, weird vibe that'll be. But hey, I'll take it. I know the the groundskeepers are going to have their hands full. Usually Augusta National is shut down for the fall and the winter. But uh, this year it's going to be up and running. If all goes well, the other headline that we'll talk about this, like this has to be a reality TV show or NFL films has to do something with this. So the NFL announced a few weeks ago, for sure, we're going forward with our draft. And then they said, we're doing it virtually. Then they said this week, we're doing it virtually and everyone's conducting the draft from their homes. So you're going to have NFL GMs in their homes drafting multi-million dollar players for their franchises. All of a sudden, Griggs, the IT departments for each of these NFL teams becomes the MVP of the team. If you have bad Wi-Fi, if your kids are upstairs and they're gaming or streaming videos and your Wi-Fi goes out when it's your pick, this is like all of our fantasy drafts that we conduct at home. 
know him, but it's the real thing. It's going to be like the, uh, it'll look like an SNL skit and you're just, you're waiting for the dog to come running in or the kid behind him. Like, I don't know if you've seen Jimmy Fallon doing a show and the girls keep interrupting him. I mean, you're waiting for that to happen. I mean, you know, there's going to be some glitch here. So I wonder, you know, how much uh, leniency the NFL is going to have if they're like, well, the Detroit Lions are on the clock and, and we don't seem to be hearing from them. So, you know, we're going to give them a few extra minutes. Or what if you call the agent or the player and you can't get a hold of them? I guess you just draft them anyways without talking to them. But this is going to be the most interesting NFL draft and, and maybe the most interesting pro sports draft that we've ever seen just because we've never seen a virtual draft before. Yeah, and it's kind of funny too because I remember this whole draft this year was going to be bigger than ever. You know, the red carpet, the boats at the Villaggio fountains, and all that stuff. And now we're going to be doing it in our homes virtually. I, I think what a change. Yeah, I like I said, I hope NFL Films or you know ESPN, ABC does some kind of a put a camera in an NFL GM's house and and let us see the challenges that they have, or you know, what does their office look like? What is their their board look like when they're getting ready to draft? How are they communicating with the other people in their organization? How are they communicating with the agent and the player if they draft them? It's going to be really interesting to see how this is all conducted. Griggs, anything yeah, else on your, uh, on your schedule coming up? Um, well, let's see. I think today I'm going to pick up, uh, groceries, drive through groceries. So that's big time. Yeah, that is big time. <laughs> Guess what I did this week? What's that? For the first time, I'm 51 years old, I cut my own hair, Griggs. It, it got to that point where I ordered clippers on Amazon and I cut my own hair. So, you know, I, I keep my my hair pretty short. So it was a buzz cut. Uh, you know, it's basically just shaving your head. So it wasn't that hard. It's not like I was, uh, you know, going through lots of details but uh, never cut my own hair before, Griggs. So that's where we are. I had to cut my own hair in all of this. I love that. And the good thing is no one's going to see you. So we don't really know if it was cut correctly or not correctly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might post a picture on uh, our Instagram page at Sports Business Radio or on Twitter at SB Radio. By the way, uh, just real quick, the kind of great content that you get on Twitter at SB Radio, Griggs, my daughter and I brought you live ping pong from the burger house last week and you can go back and find that at sb radio about 23 minutes long of good content uh you know people say they want to see live sports so my daughter played a best two out of three match and uh, i'll let you see who won we actually had odds i was a three to one favorite but you know if there's no live sports going on right now we feel like we need to deliver that kind of amazing content to our our audience oh very riveting and uh you mentioned last week too scotty dog makes an appearance so you got that too yes all kinds of great content from the burger house all right coming up next dr myron roll neurosurgeon at mass general hospital in boston played in the nfl just an amazing story maybe one of the smartest people i've ever spoken with in my entire life that's coming up next you're listening to sports business radio we'll be right back Nearly 20 years ago, Boingo dreamed of a world where people could connect to the wireless internet anywhere with any device. Today, that dream is reality, and Boingo has been at the forefront. Now more than ever, staying connected is what matters most. Boingo keeps people connected to the people and things they love with next-generation networks built for the 5G era. They are the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., and they work with sports teams across the NFL, NBA, MLS, NCAA, and more. From 5G and CBRS to DAZ and Wi-Fi, Boingo is a trusted partner for staying connected now and in the future. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Connectivity is more important than ever, and you can learn more by visiting boingo.com or emailing sbradio at boingo.com. That's sbradio at boingo.com. My guest is Dr. Myron Roll. You can follow him on Twitter at Myron Roll, and that's Roll with an E. He's a neurosurgeon at Mass General Hospital. He played for the Tennessee Titans and the Pittsburgh Steelers after starring as a defensive back at Florida State under legendary head coach Bobby Bowden. He announced his intent to leave for medical school in 2013. He enrolled at Florida State University College of Medicine, graduated in 2017. He is a Rhodes Scholar. 
Dr. Roll, thank you so much for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. First off, let me start by saying that you're one of the most incredible human beings I've, I've ever had on this show. I have athletes who transition to post career on this show all the time. I don't think I've ever had anyone on who's doing more important work that you're doing right now. So thank you so much for your fight on the front lines against COVID-19 and everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a, it's been certainly been a blessing. And, um, you know, my, my family and my faith, uh, you know, sort of helped this journey go from, you know, New Jersey, uh, onto Florida State and then, um, to Nashville, Pittsburgh and back down to Florida. Now up here in Boston, uh, right here in the midst of a growing crisis, a pandemic, a hospital that's being, you know, overwhelmed with so many new patients with this stuff. So it's, um, it's challenging, but I'm glad I'm in this position, certainly. I want to get into COVID-19 in a little bit, but let's go back to the fact that you were an accomplished athlete when you were young. At what point did you decide, you know what, I want to play football, but I also might want to be a doctor someday? Yeah, so uh, my family, we're from the Bahamas, and we came over to this country with not a lot of resources, not a lot of um, uh, family support. We were sort of the only Bahamians in New Jersey, a uh, group in South Jersey, a town called Galloway, right outside of Atlantic City. And um, when we came, uh, my parents really wanted us to have another goal outside of just sports. They knew we were very active, very athletic, but they told my brothers and I that you know, we have to have um, another path because, um, you know, football uh, is not going to be forever and knowledge is power and that can give you an enduring and lasting impact for a lifetime uh, and so I read about a guy named Ben Carson uh, in fifth grade his book Gifted Hands I saw him as a role model as a hero for me uh, he looked like me he had parents who focused on education like mine did he didn't have a lot of money growing up either and he had a bit of a temper and so did I actually <laughs> I saw a lot of parallels in his life and mine and he became my academic hero, along with Deion Sanders being my football hero. So just keeping this idea of this parallel road, academics and sports in my life. And then when, um, you know, I was, uh, in, in high school and college, um, I just continued to have this balance of being a student athlete, putting a priority on that word student, um, before athlete. And the great thing about it was I've always had friends and coaches and mentors, uh, who allowed me to live out my life in its um, in its all fullness in both aspects, both arenas, being the hardest hitting and most aggressive football player I could be, and also being the most competitive and most intellectually curious academic student I could be. And so it was great to have uh, that support along the way. And once football was done, I had this other path that I could just jump onto. It was tough to leave football. I played it for my whole life, and it, it really informs every decision that I made uh, in my life. But I just felt that being a doctor and specifically being a neurosurgeon was a way that I could not only live out my own passion and dreams, but impact society as well. Yeah, you left the NFL after only three seasons. What was the main reason there? Were you just, you wanted to leave with your body intact so you could become a doctor? What was the reasoning there? Yeah, that was, that's, that's partially it for certain. You know, I have a lot of teammates who, were my age when they were leaving 26, 25, um, or even now, you know, I'm 33 and they can't remember their kids' first names. They have trouble waking up. They have pain, consistent pain. Uh, they're not able to walk as well as they once were. They just, their value to society, their value to their own community, uh, is, um, diminished based on the sport taking a little bit away from them. And I know it. I mean, we, we sign up for the sport knowing that risk is, is true. And for me, I knew I had greater goals, a goal to, you know, take out brain tumors and fix, you know, childhood um, hydrocephalus and spina bifida. I want to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. I'm going into that subspecialty. So I wanted that option to still be viable for me. And so if I was able to leave with enough money, frankly, to pay for medical school with my hands, you know, safe uh, and no lasting concussions or traumatic brain injury effects, I can walk out of my own volition and start this next chapter. With football, you've got a playbook. You've got to study it. You've got to know everything about it. When you're you're taking your medical exams, so much memorization, I can't even imagine. How has football helped prepare you to be a doctor? Yeah, um, so football has helped in, in several ways. Um, you know, the idea of preparation, like you mentioned, not only for exams, but also for cases and operations um, in the actual surgical operative suite. It's... Um, you know, you have to look at CT scans, you have to look at MRIs, you have to look at other scans to sort of 
um, find out and, and figure out your best approach and how you can be successful and optimize that whole operative experience for not only you and your team, but also, most importantly, the patient. Um, communicating. When you're in the operating room, you are like the quarterback, or I would, you know, people say quarterback. I say you're the safety of uh, of the operating room. <laughs> you have to be you have to be able to talk to the nurses and scrub techs and anesthesia and the device representatives and everyone who's in the room. You have to sort of man it and um, coordinate it in a way so that you know it just runs smoothly and has a nice rhythm to it. Uh, you have to overcome adversity and challenges. Uh, I did that on a football field playing against somebody like Tim Tebow or C.J. Spiller at Clemson, Tyrod Taylor of Virginia Tech. You know these great athletes who really posed a um, significant threat to our team and just they were challenging to deal with. Uh, and sometimes they would put our defense in um, you know precarious situations and you just have to match that challenge by remaining focused, staying calm, and going back to your fundamentals. And in the operating room, same thing. You get into a bleed or some sort of you know seizure that happens intraoperatively and you have to know how to manage it and know how to get out. No steps one, two, three, and then if three those three don't work, no steps four and five and six. And... Um, and I think that's helped tremendously. Uh, and, and even in this COVID-19 situation where there's so many changing dynamics and variables that we're facing every day, um, going back to my days as a football player and as an athlete, it really has helped. And um, I'm, I'm glad that I went through it for sure. You hear people in sports talk all the time about this game is pressure and this is life or death. And you're literally living that as a surgeon. To me, that's pressure. But again, I think football would help prepare you for that a little bit right yes it definitely does uh there's there's nothing like a life or death situation in the operating room or you know these um outstanding medics who are you know out in the field and in the battlefield you know these these things were that deal with um you know people's life in their balance and in their hands a split decision uh, may change the whole course of that person's not only their life but also their family's uh, life and so you have, to, you have to take it very seriously. And although football wasn't as high stakes as that, you did have to deal with 80,000, 90,000 people watching at Doe Campbell Stadium, then more watching on TV, live ESPN, you know, primetime with Kirk Herbstreet and, um, you know, calling the game from um, from the booth and, you know, all the fans watching and, and your teams watching and, and everyone's got their eyes on you and this ball goes in the air. Are you going to make a play or not? Are you going to high point it and, and um, defend that the right way or get a pass interference call or let him score a touchdown on you? It's, it, it was a lot. It was a lot of pressure for sure. And being able to just slow everything down and take a couple breaths and a couple heartbeats so that you're able to zone in and focus in on what you have to do, that certainly helped me now as a, as a physician. What are some of the most important lessons that you learned from legendary Florida State head football coach Bobby Bowden that you use today? Well, I, I think Coach Bowden uh, first was just uh, a wise sage of so many uh, important values. Um, he would tell us a lot of times about making decisions um, that best benefited you and behooved you, but also lifted your teammates and other, other people around you. He was very much into uh, the community effort, into service, uh, into making sure that everyone around you is able to win as well. Uh, and don't don't be a deleterious sort of factor. Don't be an, an, a negative um, person, um, negative energy uh, that really brings down the whole organization because one can really spoil a lot. And so having that sort of mindset has, has stayed with me um, in my residency where, you know, there's a lot of us here that come from different backgrounds, come from different walks of life, uh, worship different uh, and worship in different faiths. We, um, you know, have different family experiences. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to work together for our neurosurgical patients in this hospital. And um, being able to make decisions that uh, benefit the entire group and the collective group is something that uh, Coach Bowden stressed and I, I still use to this day. So I think that's probably the most valuable. And then he also gave us nuggets on our faith in particular, being a heavy Christian and being somebody devout. Uh, I remember when I walked into his office as a 18-year-old high school senior, he had this huge Bible on his um Hmm. on his uh on his desk and i was like wow this thing's huge and then i he said turn to your favorite verse and i turned to my favorite verse hebrews thirteen six, and you know he knew it you know like like that and i was like man i didn't even prepare him for that i mean he just he was great and so he was just a wonderful man uh did a lot for the players at florida state on and off the field and uh, i certainly take his lessons with me to this day yeah I've heard great things about him. I've never met him, but heard great things about him. You are a Rhodes Scholar. 
how did you find out and take me to that moment when you found out? What were you feeling? Yeah, so I wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar since I went to high school in Princeton. I went to this boarding school called the Hun School of Princeton. Uh, and um, well, I would go over to Jadwin Gym at the university and see Bill Bradley, um, all of his trophies and titles and um, you know his plaques. I mean, he was everywhere. So I read more about him, and I said, man, this guy not only was a dominant basketball player, then he also won this thing called a Rhodes Scholarship. Then he went and played for the Knicks, and then he became a senator, and then he ran for president. I said, this guy's done it all. He is the epitome of a student athlete. And so when I was um, being recruited out of high school, I told, honestly, every – university that was looking at me, Oklahoma, Miami, Michigan, Texas, all the ones that I was highly considering, uh, that I'd like to apply for a road scholarship one day. And, you know, they all were like, great, you know, that's awesome. But Florida State, they activated a plan right away when I got on campus hmm. to, to do it. Uh, they had me meet another road scholar who was a junior when I was a freshman. They had me participate in these open salons, these dialogues where you can sort of just pontificate on any sort of uh, world problem that you wanted to, uh, volunteer around the community in Tallahassee, the Big Bend area. And I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship my junior year, um, and I actually ended up winning in Birmingham, Alabama, the same time that our football team was playing University of Maryland at Maryland. So wow. Get your private plane up to Maryland, get to the game in the second quarter. We won the game big, and uh, my teammates doused me with water. And um, it was a big win, not only for, for myself and my family, but for my university, too. It's just an amazing accomplishment. I know you've only got a few minutes left. Take me inside Mass General right now. Uh, COVID-19, what are you seeing? You know, obviously we see all the reports on TV, but you're on the front lines. What are you seeing? Do you have enough equipment? Do you have enough ventilators, PPE? What's going on? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely much, much different. Mass General has transformed into a place that is on high alert for all these COVID-19 patients. I mean, floors that we were typically had hold our neurosurgical patients are now COVID-19 only patients. They've turned into from floors to now intensive care units because the need for oxygen support for these patients who are, you know, having some respiratory demise um, is growing. We've had to recruit um nurse practitioners for the neurosurgical service to take on um, some of these COVID-19 patients because they've had experiences prior to being a neurosurgical nurse practitioner in some other critical care setting. So uh, they're being used. I volunteer and I'm actually scheduled to work in our surge clinic. This is a hospital within a hospital that takes COVID-19 patients off the street and sort of triages them through the hospital. Our operating rooms have been um, reduced, the number of cases we're doing. Um, and next week, I believe we may even limit, have any cases to have the operating rooms turned and transformed into ICUs if it comes to that. So, you know, you walk around our hospital, there's not any visitors anymore. Everyone's wearing a mask, hand sanitizer everywhere. It's just a very, very different place that's trying to withstand um, through this surge that's coming, this, this rapid influx. And it's going to get worse in the next week or two here in Boston. Uh, so we're, we're trying to do the best we can. But I will say that our leadership in our hospital has been amazing. The nurses who are down in the ED, they are phenomenal because they're getting exposed so much, but they are just working tirelessly for these patients. And uh, it's been a great valiant effort by our hospital, but certainly a challenging one. Do you have enough equipment? So I, right now, I think we do, um, and you know, but I could see our resources being, um, um, you know, being overutilized uh, at, at soon. Obviously, with all the patients coming in, you know, we have to reuse masks at times. We have to make sure that we're judicious with how many times we're going in and out of the room, so we're not just, you know, um, being flippant with uh, the amount of gowns and gloves and face protective shields and masks that we're using. So we're, we have to be very creative with how we're doing it. And I think everyone in the hospital has got this mindset that, yes, we got to take care of these patients, but we also have to be conservative and learn how to um, best protect ourselves and keep this equipment here that we see around the country is just dwindling in numbers. I'm hearing, you know, at the beginning of this, we heard this was a disease that impacted older people or people with compromised immune systems. Now I'm hearing people who are younger and perfectly healthy also get COVID-19. Are you seeing those cases? Yeah, yeah, we we certainly have, and even pregnant women too are, are you know susceptible to to COVID nineteen. So no one is really, um, you know, sort of excluded from from this highly infectious disease. Um, you know, it's how soon do you decompensate based on your comorbidities and your pre existing conditions? Um, do you have some 
pulmonary pathology that um, will um, rapidly take away the functional reserve that you already have in your body and, um, and cause you to get intubated emergently or urgently. Uh, and then having these sort of goals of care, life, end of life discussions may happen soon after that. So yes, it ha hits everyone. It may hit a certain subset of the population a lot harder. Um, but thankfully, um, you know, we are working tirelessly. Uh, there are some, like I said, amazing nurses and especially critical care doctors, infectious disease doctors, medical doctors who manage these things um, on a day-to-day -day basis. They are they're working very, very hard to uh, to make sure that these patients are safe. And when they need to recruit a surgical specialty like neurosurgery, like they have with us, um, then we're, we're willing and ready to, um, to participate, you know, as, as able for sure. Forgive me if this is an ignorant question, but you tweeted out a story about preclinical trials of two potential COVID-19 vaccines. How long does it typically take to develop a vaccine? And do you think we're getting any closer to that? Well, it typically takes a, a while. I mean, it takes months to maybe even a year or so. Um, I would say more conservatively a year or two uh, to make sure that vaccines are two things in particular, safe and efficacious. Um, you know, especially in, in the United States, if we were to go back home to the Bahamas or maybe some other country, regulations may be a little bit more laxed. But here in the United States, uh, there is an absolute premium placed on safety, 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 and even more safety. It has to be safe. You cannot prematurely put something on the market that will be worse than what you're trying to treat. And then it's got to do what's intended to do. Can it be efficacious? Does it does it hit the intended part? Does it uh, go to the intended part of the body? Is it Can it work over and over and over again? And can you prove that? And once you can, then you can disperse it widely uh, for public consumption. But but until then, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's something that is just sort of a, a theory and um, being developed, but I, I know there are people who are rapidly working and scientists rapidly working to expedite it as much as possible, but uh, it has to go through those steps and those processes, especially here, no question. What are your days looking like? I'm hearing about doctors and nurses doing 20-hour days. Are, are you getting any sleep? Are you able to eat? What's your days looking like? Yeah, so I, I, like right now I'm on a 24-hour shift and you know we do 24 hours. I'm doing another 24 on Sunday and another one Wednesday and um, this is what our this is what we're kind of turned to do, but frankly, that's no, that's not uh, unique to surgery, uh, especially neurosurgery. I, I, we always do 24-hour shifts, um, so yeah, it's it's long, it's long, and it's um, it's taxing for sure. Um, but I think the important part here is to realize it's not a, about you know you as um, uh, so to speak. It, it, you know, obviously, you have to keep yourself healthy and keep yourself you know. Um, well rested but uh, at the end of the day there are some people who are going through some very very difficult times in their life they didn't ask for COVID-19 to hit them as hard as it did and if you have the expertise and the skills and talent to take care of them like some of our amazing nurses and doctors do um, then you're called to do it and um, I, I think when you, the hero word is thrown around a lot for these medical professionals not only here at Mass General but also around the country. I think it's a real one. And I just encourage anyone who either knows a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist or a scientist researcher working against COVID-19 to just hail them and tell them thank you because um, there's a lot of risk happening, not only risk for their themselves, but their families when they go home, um, they could potentially infect or spread uh, the infection. So it's, it's challenging for all of us, but I'm optimistic that we can get through certainly. Well, like I said at the beginning of the interview, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Last question you mentioned earlier in the interview, Dr. Ben Carson, your academic hero, Deion Sanders, your sports hero. Have you met both of them or either of them? Yes, I have. So Good. Dr. Carson, I met him, uh, yeah, I met him at Silver Springs, Maryland, um, went to church with him and developed a relationship with him. He actually wrote me a letter of recommendation for my neurosurgery residency and then prime uh you know he's a florida state guy so when he would come around fsu i'd see him and so yeah those guys uh it was surreal to see them and i also met bill bradley at one point too so i had to tell him how he got <laughs> me thinking about the rose scholarship so it's been uh it's been great to see these giants and shake their hands well let me tell you what you're a giant you're a hero to many people like i said at the beginning of this interview you're just an amazing person. There's just those people on earth that are amazing people, and, and you're one of them. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, ever since I heard about your story in 2013. Dr. Myron Roll, you can follow him on Twitter at Myron Roll, and that's Roll with an E. Thank you so much for everything that you do, and please be safe. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're listening Great. to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. If you're working from home now like I am, you still need to look professional. 
Many of us are doing Zoom conferences or FaceTime calls with business associates. That's why I turn to my Mizzen and Main dress shirts. I need to look good from the waist up, but I also want to be comfortable. Mizzen and Main is like athletic wear disguised as a dress shirt, making them great for comfort while working from home. It's a shirt that has worked for thousands of customers, including hundreds of professional athletes like J.J. Watt and Phil Mickelson. Head on over to MizzenandMain.com and use promo code SBR to get $10 off your dress shirt. That's MizzenandMain.com code SBR. Guess what? Mizzen and Main also make super comfortable wrinkle-free pants and shorts, so you can check those out as well. Head on over to MizzenandMain.com. Use promo code SBR to get $10 off your next purchase. That's MizzenandMain.com, code SBR. My guest is Mark Sanchez. He is the former star quarterback at USC. He played 10 seasons in the NFL with the New York Jets, the Philadelphia Eagles, Dallas Cowboys, Chicago Bears, and Washington Redskins. He's a current analyst for ESPN. He's the co-host of the Fourth and Forever podcast. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram, or he's a fun follow at Mark underscore Sanchez. Mark, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Oh, I'm so good, man. Thanks for having me and taking the time. This is great. Yeah. So I love following you on social media. The video <laughs> that you posted this week of you and your son playing Michael Jackson's Beat It on guitar. That's pretty good. How long have you been playing guitar? Uh, let's see. Let's see. Probably, I, I think I took a class. Yeah, Mr. Elch, the band teacher at Michigan High School, taught a guitar class. And I chose it for one of my electives. And, um, you know, my dad was like, all right, cool, but where are you going to get the instrument? I'm like, well, you know, when you go buy a guitar, when you go do this, <laughs> he said, this sounds pretty expensive. <laughs> so, uh, we, uh, I took that guitar class forever ago. I took a couple at USC and then now I'll just, you know, watch other people teach you on YouTube or, um, whatever my kid's into. That's kind of. You know, it used to be a Tibitsy Spider, and now it's beat it by Michael Jackson. <laughs> You've always been into music. I read that you're an avid fan of musical theater. You even presented at the Tony Awards. Where does that Love come from? Music. Yeah, music and musicals. Sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off, but yeah, my uh, my my dad exposed me. I think my dad and my mom they took me to Lion King. I want to say, and to um, what was the other uh, Oliver Twist, maybe or Oliver, I think. Uh, were the first two Broadway shows. And then my first concert, I think I was like 12 years old. I went to a Jimmy Buffett concert. Huh. <laughs> and that place was just insane. RVs with like fins on them and people brought, you know, sand and put it in the parking lot and made an entire beach. And this was in Anaheim, California. So it was, uh, it was pretty wild. So ever since then, I guess I just, I love music. I love theater. And I really, really started to appreciate how much work they put in to their craft and it it paralleled me as an nfl player as a professional athlete because they're i mean they put in seven eight shows a week and they're constantly taking care of their bodies and you know getting massages and they can only drink and eat certain things because of they need their voice they need to project they need to be healthy they need to get their sleep and so our lives were very similar our regimen was very similar and uh once i got to meet a lot of those people the stuff at the, the 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 Tony's presentation kind of fell into place, and it totally made sense. And I got to I got to announce for uh, I got to present for uh, Memphis, and they ended up winning Best Musical that year. So it was really 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 special. That's cool. When you were playing for the Jets, did you go to Broadway and and see plays, or was <laughs> oh, that too high profile and and you couldn't get in there without being noticed? I did it all the time. I'd see everything, every, especially like once. The theater people kind of knew that I was into it. It was so great for for me to be uh, really an ambassador for Broadway in the NFL sphere because guys were like, you know, guys on the team, a lot of my teammates, and maybe I would have been if I wasn't exposed to it early, just didn't know about it, kind of thought it was a little different, and maybe like, oh, that's something like my wife will go to, or is this like going to a ballet show? Maybe that's not, you know, cool or maybe it's not family or this, that, and the other. And I'm like, Dude, just go. And so I ended up getting guys to go with their wives and they're like, that was one of the coolest shows I've ever seen. Number one. And number two, like my wife loves me for that. <laughs> like Just showing a little bit of culture and appreciation for culture and arts and theater. I mean, these guys, it went a long way. So it became 
a thing. You know, at first I kind of had to explain myself because guys were like, well, you're sure hanging out on Broadway quite a bit. I'm like, just gotta just go experience it. I, I promise you'll love it. That's awesome. And it's kind of unexpected, right? Like the macho football player, you wouldn't think that someone like you or your teammates would be going to shows on Broadway. But I agree. There's a lot of parallels between their preparation and the preparation of a professional athlete. Oh, 100%. Guys were just blown away at the moves and the timing, uh, the repetition, the practice, the hours, you know, hours and hours and hours of practicing this stuff that they have to do. I said, dude, they do it that time. They have to be their best every single time. Like, it's Bruce Springsteen. Every time he goes on and sings, you know, Born to Run, that's that person. That might be that person's only experience hearing that. Yeah. So if he just mails it in, they don't know what that's like. And they're bummed out. They want to hear it just like the album, you know, just like the record, just like whatever. And I was like, that's the way people come to watch us. They want to see our best. So we try and give them our best on a Sunday. These people are doing the same thing. Talk to me about your social media game. Do you pull your phone out of your pocket and you just kind of post whenever you feel like it, like you did with the video with you and your son? Or do you have a strategy around when you're going to post? Oh, buddy, we need to sit down and come up with strategies. <laughs> Listen and does strategy for Instagram and Twitter and all that. I'm so sporadic. And when I'm into it, I'm into it. But I just, I feel like I just missed that window or I'm just... I guess you would say too old or wise, you could use. Uh, but I, I, I don't think about stuff like that. Like as soon as I'm experiencing something to just turn my camera on. Right. I have to like do it again or remind my son like, Hey, you want to, uh, you know, say that again. Or what did you just tell dad? Or, you know, I don't think about it the first time. It's not my initial instinct, I guess. And I kind of just missed that boat. But when we're doing the podcast, it's easy. Because you're constantly creating content, you know, on a weekly basis or whatever, and you can spread out that content over time. So it doesn't feel like you're just always on your phone and always, you know, because there's a, a fine line between sharing what you're doing and then just, you know, totally suffocating under this, like, need to share. Right. If that makes sense. You're right. just like, dude, what am I doing? This is way, I'm spending way too much time just to get this 10 second video out. Yeah. Like, I'm done with this. I'm not doing this anymore. So I kind of go through those back and forth. But I think with a better strategy, I think I'd reach more people. It's just uh, every time I think about it, I do it. It's never like, you know, the first thing on my mind, though. No, I get it. But I like it. I like what you post and, you know, certainly the clips from your podcast. So let's talk about your podcast, the fourth and forever podcast. Uh, you've got a co-host on that, Adam Ray. He's a comedian. You guys have a good chemistry. Uh, how did you get to know Adam? So I saw him in a comedy show. It was either the comedy store. I want to say it was the comedy store in Hollywood. And he was sandwiched in between, I want to say, uh, oh, um, Joey Diaz, Bill Burr, uh, who did uh, Malibu's Most Wanted, Jamie Kennedy? Is I think right? so, yeah. Uh, him, who else was in the lineup? There were like two other huge, huge names in comedy. And then Adam Ray. And I had talked to the people uh, at Showtime and Malka who were who were helping uh, with the podcast and, and support the podcast and produce it. Um, and they said, you know, this is the guy. Like, we want you to check him out, see if you like him, see if you think he's funny. And I'd watched a bunch of stuff online, and I'm like, dude, this is a serious lineup. Like, I know who these other comics are, and I'm not, like, a big comedy guy, but I know these guys. And he's right in the middle, so if there's a lull, you know, I'll know where it came from. Kind of <laughs> this is this will kind of test his metal, right? And if anything, he was one of the brightest spots in the show in the entire lineup. He just had that place rocking. It was so impressive, and he's so good at working the crowd. I think that's his best trait. Is you know he, a lot of people have their own stick. They go into character. They do this and the other, and he could do everything really well. But he does that the best when people give answers, and he just. I mean, he just crushes people, just undresses them in front of everybody, but he does it in a way that's so playful and relatable and, and keeps it light, keeps it fun, keeps it moving. He was, uh, he was so impressive. And then once I got to talk to him, he is the hugest football fan and wants the insider knowledge, wants to know why certain plays work the way they do, why they don't, why trades happen, why they don't, why coaches move here, what does that really mean in a press conference when a coach says this or that or whatever. And so when I can take him behind the curtain and explain some of those things to him, 
that's where like the soul of our podcast lives. That's, that's kind of the ethos of the podcast. Now I like it. And like I said, you guys have a good chemistry. He brings us something a little bit different than, than what you bring. You know, I've seen that you've had your own, your old coach, uh, Rex Ryan on. You had Sam Darnold on. Deshaun Watson, I thought was excellent. Is there a guest, you know, as you start your podcast, you're in the early stages. Is there someone who's on your, your bucket list? You're like, I got to get that person on my podcast. Oh, well, I think at some point we'd love to talk to uh, Patrick Mahomes for obvious reasons. Right. Um, I think him and Adam would have a great time together, number one. And two, just to pick his brain about some things. I mean, Tom Brady would be, you know, probably next level. Yeah. Top, top. top. And comedy, though, uh, you know, I, I think somebody like uh, Adam Sandler, David Spade, those kind of guys, because I know we wanted to get some of those people on and get their take on certain teams you know especially when the jets come back and start winning again hopefully here soon uh with my man sam donald i know adam sandler is a huge jets fan because we interacted when i was there in new york and so to have him on when they go on a big run would be would be really cool that'd be that's something i thought about quite a bit so my fingers are crossed for those guys at what point during your football career did you start thinking post-career? Because, you know, you've moved into broadcasting and podcasting. Was it earlier in your career that you knew that you wanted to make that transition, or was it not until later in your career that you knew that's what you wanted to do? To be completely candid, I would say way late and way too late. Um, I, you know, it was off-season going into the year. I went to D.C. with the Redskins and, you know, was – thinking about doing the broadcasting boot camp, thought maybe I'll go into coaching. Uh, you know, I have my son and I'm co-parenting my son now. He's three. So he goes back and forth uh, between his mom's house and mine. And so, you know, if I leave for, you know, six to nine months just coaching, that's a lifestyle you have to buy into and completely accept. And so I just didn't know if that was really going to be the route for me. Not with my situation at home because I love being around DJ. As you can tell, we have a blast together. Yeah. And I, I, once you sign up to coach, like that becomes your life. And then your, those coaches' families become your family and you integrate your family to them. But that would be, I, I don't get a control necessarily where I'm going to coach, just like where you're going to play. You move around sometimes. And so I thought, I don't know if that's what I really want to subject myself to. And, and the way I'm going to raise my son, I don't know if I, I want to be present. So, what can I do around the game? And that was more of the broadcasting uh, angle. And so I signed up for the broadcasting boot camp that the NFL provides, which honestly, not just to learn, to get repetitions of, uh, you know, the little, uh, the little microphone in your ear and having somebody talk to you while you give an answer uh, or, you know, understand what it takes to set up a podcast or a radio uh, broadcast or whatever. It's, it's meeting the other guys and I just wish I would have done that sooner while I was playing because the media gets this stigma of like trying to uncover all these stories and out, you know, information that you don't want out and all this kind of stuff. And that's really not their goal. I mean, there are certain people that do that and they give the media a bad name, but that's not the overall goal. The overall goal is the story and the person behind the story. That's what people want. And so that's what they teach you at this broadcasting boot camp. So I would recommend it. I wish I would have done it after my rookie year, second year. I recommend it to all the players in the league now. And it it stinks with this COVID-19 thing going on because they can't do it. But it's, uh, it's a real blast. And I learned quite a bit from, from that experience. And I'm glad I did it. I interacted with a lot of players, learned a lot about the business side of it and then decided, I think I, you can, you get a chance to call games. You get a chance to, uh, work in studio and um, it ended up working out where I could be in studio with ESPN and ABC. And uh, it's been an, it's been an absolute blast and I've learned quite a bit. Who were some of the people that showed you the ropes with broadcasting? Let's see. So Jerry Madelon was uh, a talent coach for ESPN for a long time. And he was at uh, the broadcasting boot camp. James Brown from inside the NFL. He's great. Yes. Oh man. Such a nice guy, isn't he? He's like the oh, nicest guy ever. See, that's every time you, you bring his name on. That's what everybody says. And I was so impressed with him. And one of my favorite stories about him is he's talking to players, every person he talks to, he's just always on. You know, you think, and it's not like a, uh, 
disingenuous on like he's always on camera because there's people like that and you just get rubbed the wrong way and you're like all right dude like turn it off let's just be normal humans he's a normal human and he really is genuine about everything he's doing he cares about people he loves asking people questions he loves imparting knowledge on people from his experiences good and bad he was so open and transparent in that broadcasting boot camp i think people were amazed at the story of where he's come from what he's overcome and and I was just so impressed with him. And then I see him in the airport, and he doesn't even know I'm, I'm looking at him or near him. And he's talking to these two little ladies, helping them with their ticket, find their gate. And it's like he's on camera. You would think he's being followed around by a camera crew at all times, but it's so genuine. And you just love that. I really, really appreciated him and uh, his knowledge and how, how open he was. I mean, immediately just gave me his number. They call me anytime. If you've got any questions, if you're in a jam, just let me know. Let's talk. I'd love to help you. And it was it was so awesome. And then I got lucky enough to be with uh, Greenberg at ESPN, who's, I mean, a huge name in, in um, sports media. And then uh, Mike Greenberg, Greeny, and then um, Kevin Gandhi and, and Jonathan Vilma. I don't know if I could have been with a better crew because Vilma just brings such a different perspective, a defensive perspective. And it makes it so fun to go back and forth with him when we watch games and, and really analyze how we how we watch it, the lens we're viewing it through, whether it's offense or defense, is so different. Um, and so that's fun to go back and forth, and I think we found a good rhythm. And then Kevin Nagandi, I mean, dude's been doing it for so long and one of the faces of ESPN, and uh, he's, by the end of the year, we're in, um, you know, December, getting ready for bowl season and stuff. I think the last five, six weeks I would fly out to um, – to Bristol, I would just stay at his house with his wife and his three kids. <laughs> I met his mom and dad. I met his uh, brother. You know, I'd sleep in their basement, and then we'd wake up. We'd be playing, like, knee football and basketball in their basement, playing video games with their kids, and then we'd go into work. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. What a it setup. Was, his kids were uh, probably like, look who dad brought home from work. It was especially because I played in Philly. So they were like, oh, you were with the Eagles? What's Zach Ertz <laughs> like? What's Fred Phillip like? You know, and these guys are, you know, they're seven and ten years old or whatever. And so they know everybody who's ever played immediately. Did you play with Brian Dawkins? I was like, no, I didn't play with Brian Dawkins. <laughs> what about Donovan McNabb? And I said, no, I didn't play with Donovan McNabb. <laughs> so, they think you're older so, than you really are. Oh, dude, it's so funny. Yeah, no, I had to remind him I'm not that old. No, that's really cool. Um, it, You know, I think you do a really good job because – the role of an analyst is to take us next level. Like I've never played NFL quarterback, obviously. And, and for us to be able to hear from you, like here's the defense and here's how it's lining up and here's the offense and here's what we're trying to do. Like, I think you do a really good job of taking the viewer inside the game and showing us either what's coming or why they're running a certain scheme or play. And it's, it's important because it's, it's hard to forget that people don't don't have all your same experiences, right? You know, and it, it's easy to just assume they do. To assume that, oh yeah, this guy's changing the play. And of course, he's looking at the other side. Look at where, look at where the safety's standing. And people are like, wait, either you know, there's different levels of wait. What's the safety? Or two, what do you mean? Why is he landing up there? What's what's this mean? And so, when you just explain something briefly and as simply as you can to somebody like Adam, who is really the viewer who gets to sit in on the conversation it's you know defense is a gap responsibility so everybody has a specific gap every space between each player is a gap somebody's responsible for that gap so anytime a run goes like really far somebody blew it and you'll probably hear the coach say we need to be more disciplined in our gap responsibilities that's the reason because somebody got blocked somebody on offense did the right thing and won their one-on-one battle and allowed the running back to run through an open gap that's how the game works. And I see it so quickly because I've done it forever. Just the same way somebody analyzing the stock market on Wall Street knows exactly what every, you know, peak and valley means in every graph. That's what they do. So it's fun to do that and, and almost coach it to Adam and the viewer and give them a look at, at what's really going on and why plays work or don't work. All right, I know we only have a few minutes left. I want to talk some football with you. Uh, true or false, your first pass in high school as a sophomore, 55-yard touchdown. True? That is true with an asterisk because that was my first varsity pass. Okay. So that was the first time I sat, uh, sat up, uh, um, 
um, on the varsity team. Gosh, no, blanking on it wasn't Esperanza. I forgot who we were playing, but we uh, we were at Cal State Fullerton at the college there. And it was like a third and fifteen to start the fourth quarter, and they asked me to go in right when we were switching sides of the field. So like Sanchez, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> like warm up. I was like, "It's third and fifteen. Why don't we just wait till next drive?" No, <laughs> you know. And so uh, I threw it to Bobby Withorn, who scored a 55-yard touchdown on uh, Double Smash Special with the play. So you set a pretty high bar with the first play. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, somebody brought in the newspaper clipping, clipping um, like that next Monday or whatever the day after the game, and it was so funny. We had one of these uh, this coach, Coach Rodriguez, who was hilarious, older Mexican dude, and he said um, that the clipping says Sanchez has electric debut. And uh, he would always, he was almost like Michael Scott from The Office, but think of like a thick, thicker Mexican accent. Yeah. And the older guy, and, and he's just like this big burly dude, and he was like our special teams and like line coach, you know, so he'd get physical with the players and get in there. Like he was almost like trying to play still, you know? And so Coach Rodriguez says, I see you're in the newspaper, Sanchez. Apparently, you got electrocuted last night. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? And the whole class just lost it. And I was like, Coach, since you had an electric thing, he's like, that's what I said. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is Seriously so funny. Best. Best. You played for two of the most interesting coaches. One, Pete Carroll at USC, who's been on this show before. Um, and then Rex Ryan with the Jets. Yeah. Both so personable, kind of those bigger-than-life personalities, but both very good football coaches. How did Pete prepare you for the NFL, and what was it like playing for him? Man, he was um, – my my favorite story about Pete to encapsulate his whole personality is when we were in the Rose Bowl in 2009, I think it was like we're playing against uh, – we're playing against Penn State. It's a third down. And a crucial third down right before we kind of blow the doors off the thing and run away with the game. But it was like that pivotal point where you could feel the momentum kind of switching back and forth. And it was, you know, the next team to kind of make a statement would, that was it. We were at that point, right? On the brink of either blowing it open or staying in a tight game for the rest of the game. And, uh, we're, Sark calls a timeout, our offensive coordinator, and I ran over to the sidelines to figure out what we're going to do. And we're looking at calls on the wristband. And he's like, what do you like? And we're going through potential calls that we want for this third down, whether we're going to hand it off, have a check play at the line, sprint out, drop back, whatever. And he just grabbed me away from the group and just kind of put his arm around me. And he goes, is this great or what? <laughs> and I was like, what? I was like, which play? And he goes, no, is this? And he goes, look around. He goes, look at me. And I looked at him and he goes, look around. Look around the entire stadium. This is exactly what I talked to you about. Remember in your living room with your dad and your brothers and your mom when we were recruiting you? Didn't we talk about the Rose Bowl, man? This is, this is it. We're doing it. And I'm just like, is this guy crazy or what? What is he talking about? Who cares about all that stuff? we got to convert this third down, you know? Yeah. So in the moment, I just kind of brushed it off, and I was like, what a weirdo. <laughs> like, dude, we got to go. we got to play. Forget all this other stuff. Forget all these other people. And now – being so far removed from it, appreciating that moment, maybe more than any other moment in my sports career, hmm. of understanding where you're at, taking a second to soak it all in, appreciate where you are, where you're going, but where you come from, and what's what's giving you the opportunity to get there, and the people who've who've helped you along the way. And it was it was so Pete Carroll, it was so Pete, and I I just truly appreciate him, our friendship, um, and and his mentorship. Didn't he bring? celebs to practice pretty regularly too like will oh, yeah. ferrell obviously was there but that was part of his uh his deal too at usc of course he capitalized on that hollywood aspect he knew that could be a, a recruiting tool that nobody else could use and i mean to get to think about it to get to a game where where do celebrities live a lot of them live in la a lot of them live in new york but what football team out there can kind of claim those people maybe Rutgers but that's a real drive maybe Syracuse but that's a real drive from the city like unless they went to school there they might not want to go hang out there so we had you name it the Red Hot Chili Peppers jeez, uh, Carmelo Anthony uh, I mean a million guys whoever was in town they got the invite and they were on the sidelines at USC and he knew that if the team was good that was a cool social place to be right it's like when the Rams are good or the Chargers are good that's where people want to go and want to be seen and all that. And so it works. 
hand in hand. He knew what they wanted. He knew what the school wanted. And he capitalized on it. But that's how he was with every situation. He used that as a way to compete and to compete with other schools and offer something that nobody else could. You come here, this is what, what happens. And nobody else can give you that. So that was part of his stick as a recruiter. And it was, it was brilliant. Give me your best Rex Ryan story. I'm sure there's a million of them. My favorite hard knocks on HBO ever was the Jets one, just so I could watch Rex. But, uh, you know, as someone who played for him, you were in the locker room. Give me a good Rex story. Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't know what I can say publicly. Exactly. Probably not. <laughs> if, there, if there's no clean ones, then that's fine. We'll leave it alone. No, but I mean, uh, I mean not, it's not like, you know, some – awful stories or anything but i'm trying to think oh man it just how how fun and playful he was yeah um you know we go to play the browns and his brother uh rob was one of the coordinators and he's like hey don't forget we got a high long and i'm like high long like block like he's like oh yeah baby and i'm like what are you talking about (laughs) He's like, you just go kneel behind him and I'll go knock him over. Tabletop is that. <laughs> so as soon as, as soon as we're found, Rex is like right in front of him and he's kind of giving me the signal with his eyes. And um, this is in pregame and I'm like walking over, kind of waltzing, moseying, and finally getting positioned to like tabletop. And it was like Rob knew exactly. And he's just like, he was talking to him for a couple seconds and then immediately just kind of like jumped in place and was just like, what's going on? Like, I know you're playing some BS. What's going on, Rex? <laughs> These guys, one, they sound exactly the same, so it sounds like they're talking to me, like Rex is talking to himself and they look the same other than their hair. Right. So it's really strange, like when he had conference calls and they were on the phone together, it's really <laughs> weird. But, I mean, Rob just knew right away that we were going to try and prank him, like, that's the way Rex is. So he immediately, like, jumps out of the way and tries to knock me down while I'm already on the floor. That's very so, funny. Like, game, it looks like we're just messing around, but he's that's who Rex was, and, and he's such a loyal dog. Like he's he's one of those dudes that's just like, you know, uh, if for some reason if the stadium was closed for the game, it's just like, all right, well, let's just decide it in the parking lot. Either we fist fight or play on the pavement. Like whatever, let's go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's just who he is. That's cool. And look at you guys are both broadcasters now. <laughs> exactly. Funny, it's, <laughs> funny how it's things fun. work out. Exactly. Um, a few other things. NCAA football. Should players be paid? I mean, I know this is such a, a wide open topic and we see the name and likeness is probably going to come into effect pretty soon. But, you know, you're someone, there were a lot of Mark Sanchez jerseys sold at USC. And if you had had the ability to capitalize on your name, image and likeness at USC, you probably would have made a good amount of money while you were in college. Where do you stand on, on that? You know, it's, it really is an interesting question because to be totally honest, I didn't even think about it when I was in school. I, I really didn't. It never even like crossed my mind because I was under the impression like you go to school and you get this free education, you get your room board paid for, and you play ball, and that's kind of what you get. That's the trade-off. And sure, there's an argument for that, but there's also an argument, like you said, for this name, image, and likeness. There's people making a lot of money off of, you know, Matt Liner, Mark Sanchez, Carson Palmer, you know, all these guys who have played at USC. Reggie Bush. Reggie Bush. And they make a ton of money off of their, basically, merchandise, image, name, and likeness. So I under, I totally understand that argument. And I also understand that people don't necessarily value the education as comparable, you know? And that's somebody's prerogative, whether you do or don't. I don't, I don't know whether I do or don't. I'm thankful to have graduated from USC and it really has opened a lot of doors for me. So I think it's important for these guys to get their education. But at the same time, if these guys are leaving early to play ball, it'd be nice to have something in the bank to kind of support them if they ever do come back to school or whatever it is. So I, I understand that. And then the other argument is, you know, if I'm, um, sure, if you're, if you're me and you can make all this money as the star quarterback of a premier university, there's only a handful of people in the country who get to do that. And I'm very blessed to have done it. But if, what if you're the Olympic, you know, uh, silver medalist swimmer and you don't have, you know, a million people on social media following you and stuff like that, but you got a few and you want to do a summer camp 
and you want to teach kids how to swim. There's You can't say, like, hey, I'm so-and-so from the USC swim team. I won this medal. Here's the flyer on my Instagram. I put it on people's cars in the parking lot near the local pool and say, hey, I'm doing this camp. You can, for 20 bucks, bring your kids, and I'll teach them how to swim. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. you know. But as soon as you start doing that, now you've opened up this Pandora's box of once the name, image, and likeness is there, I mean, it's no longer a... Um, you know, uh, a non-professional sport. It's no longer a collegiate athlete. You're just, you're a pro basically because you're getting paid to play in, in, in essence, right? So it just kind of eliminates what's been the norm for very long, whether that norm is right, legal or wrong or illegal. You see what I'm saying? So I, where do I stand? I don't know. I, I don't think you can deny that swimmer that right to do that, whether it's swimming, soccer, football, baseball, basketball, any sport. Um, I, I have a hard time saying, no, you can't do that. Yeah. But when, like I said, once you do that, it's on and it totally changes the landscape. Yeah. I think we're headed in that direction, but we'll, we'll see. Oh, no doubt. This is just, once that passes, or it already has, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure. So that's, once that's happened, that's the tip of the iceberg and it is a very slippery slope. Like that's, the doors are going to get blown off there soon. All right. We'll end on this. NFL draft is coming up. NFL is proceeding with the draft. They're going to do it virtually. This is the weirdest time in my lifetime. And as someone who has played elite pro football, how do you prepare for the draft? How do you prepare for getting ready for a season where you might not have very much time for OTAs, training camp? It might be a short preseason. And if you're trying to fit in the season, you're just getting right to the regular season games. How do you, if you were advising someone who came to you and said, Mark, what do I do? What would you tell them? Oh, man, it's a great question. And without getting anybody in trouble, <laughs> I know how certain guys are doing it, and it's not easy. Um, and they have, you know, the means to do certain things and the circumstances that allow that. Uh, but this is similar in some ways to the lockout year we had where we had to get guys together on our own. The problem is you're not supposed to group up. You know right. what I mean? It's one thing to work out by yourself, but football, I can't go out and practice third downs by myself. Right. I can't go out and work red zone stuff by myself, especially as a quarterback. And neither can the O-linemen, D-linemen, linebackers, running backs, receivers, tight ends, cornerbacks, safeties, all that. They, You can't do it without everybody else. It's a little different than basketball and all that stuff. So what do you do? I mean, you have to keep yourself in shape in some ways, but I really think the onus is on the NFL and the emphasis needs to be on them when training camp does start that there is a, you know, at least a, almost a month leeway time or three weeks or something that allows these players, assuming they did nothing, assuming they couldn't do anything, couldn't go to a gym, couldn't work out, couldn't do anything other than like push-ups and sit-ups. And you should give them time to get acclimated, to get in football shape before you just throw them in pads and a helmet before you just start banging into each other because this is going to be, I mean, the injuries will just spike and, and it'll be horrible because you'll get such a lesser product on the field. Uh, and that's what people are watching. They want to see touchdowns. They, they don't want to see a bunch of penalties. They don't want to see a bunch of injuries. So to the, to the extent they can give them as much time as possible without, you know, compromising the start of the season, I would assume, is is figure that out that's that's going to be the toughest thing logistically for players individually i mean if you're lucky enough to have some jimmy corman at home just stay in shape the best you can find you know call your trainer whatever it is and figure out what you can do at home because there's plenty of stuff to do to get in shape it's just it's difficult when you don't have that camaraderie around you or that coach explaining or teaching or whatever then we're not even talking about the mental side yet we're not even talking about the strategy x's and o's yet we're just talking about physical shape, just showing up in shape, right? So the advantage will go to the teams that have somebody in place that's been in the same system that have uh, that don't have as much turnover, right? You want you want continuity, you want similarity. So those teams have a huge, huge advantage when they have an established starter who knows the system, um, or you know guys who've been around have a good nucleus of a team, and you know, they know what they're doing more or less and could essentially play a game right now without looking at anything, go in and play a game right now. Those teams have a huge advantage, especially at the beginning of the season. 
Mark Sanchez, you can find him on ESPN. He is the co-host of the Fourth and Forever podcast. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Mark underscore Sanchez. Mark, I've wanted to do this for a long time. You didn't disappoint. I really appreciate you taking the time and stay safe during uh, these weird times right now. Yes, sir. You do the same. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Open Doors helps athletes share content on social. Founded in 2012 by two former Nebraska football players, Open Doors has become the world's leading athlete marketing platform. More than 6,000 athletes around the world use Open Doors to receive content from partners and publish to their personal social channels like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all with one click. Open Doors makes it easier than ever before for brands, including sponsors and licensees and properties, to push approved content through the players' social channels. Leading sports organizations like the PGA Tour, NFL Players Association, Major League Baseball Players Association, the LPGA, and dozens of professional and collegiate sports teams use the platform to send video highlights, photos, GIFs, and more to athletes. The publishing process is very easy and convenient. Once registered, athletes receive a text message when their team, league, or brand partner has content for them to share on social media. The athlete simply reviews the content and hits approve. Open Doors does the rest. If you're an athlete, start using Open Doors as a tool today to build your personal brand and maximize your value on social media. If you're a brand trying to connect with athletes who you thought you'd never be able to gain access to on your own, Open Doors is your solution. Open Doors makes athletes more accessible to the people who support them. Visit opendoors.com or follow them on social media at opendoors. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com.